I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice. Tumbling down the rabbit hole. Hmm? This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Deeper Down the Rabbit Hole. Now live. Tuesdays, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. On the Para-X Radio Network. Welcome, welcome. This is Deeper Down the Rabbit Hole, and I'm here with my most excellent co-host, Jason Caldwell. How are you doing today, Jason? I'm doing good, but I was monitoring the Para-X site, and I don't think we're on the air, man. We're on the air now. I just All right. Um, Good job, then. I I recovered that uh, technological snafu in, in flight, as it were. Good job. So, if you guys can hear us on uh, the Para-X chat room, please let us know, just so I can see the chat is running good. Uh, yeah, there was an in-flight hiccup there, so sorry about that, everyone. Um, so, what do we have coming up? We just got through Crucible, which was fantastico, um, for those of you who met us there, and it was fantastic uh, to uh, have the panel there. It was just a great time, everyone, and, of course, Jason and I contributed to the mythology of crucible which you can ask us sometime in private at convocation with rum at convocation our next event where we're going to be at and uh they finally decided what uh i'll be doing and uh i'm happy to announce that we will be doing a michael ritual of judgment saint michael and doing an evocation of the powers of judgment so that way you can face your own judgment yes we are going to do that Ex- <laughs> uh, I expect that to be a fantastic ritual and I'm starting to prepare and finish everything off now in addition they gave me a second wonderful class that I really think is the embodiment of the judgment tarot card in every single way uh, which I aptly named the most hardcore class ever which simply a at convocation February 22nd uh, that weekend it simply is I'm going to put you in a room I'm going to blindfold you I'm going to give you earplugs and really let you come to terms with yourself which to me that is the that is judgment in a nutshell which is the theme of the event and there's many other excellent presenters there that have been on the show such as the Dragon Ritual Drummers um it's just going to be awesome, and me and Jason will hope to hopefully see you then. Right now, we have the Magical 30 Challenge uh, going on, the Talisman Challenge. Basically, if you can empower a talismanic item for 30 days, you'll get some prizes. We're going to, this weekend, record and do the ritual with... Uh, to give out the prizes for the last Magical 30 uh, challenge where people did energy work for 30 days and had marvelous transformations. And that's what's going on with us. And without further ado, I want to... uh, Tonight's guest uh, is seminal in the left-hand path. Oh, completely seminal. If you do any left-hand path at all, you'll know the name of the person we're having on the show. Don Webb has written... Uncle Satnet's Guide to the Left-Hand Path. He's an infamous in the Temple of Set. He was critical in the Temple of Set's uh, growth and still is involved. Uh, tonight we're going to talk about a somewhat technical topic with him called Overthrowing the Old Gods. 
uh, Alistair Crowley and the Book of the Law from a Setian's point of view. Uh, now I have to say a couple things uh, as we bring them on. We've kind of already received hate mail from various traditional Satanist groups. Thank you. We have a strong and fast delete key, and we laugh at it every time we see it. Right, Jason? Very true. Silly, silly demon people. Well, I don't know about that, but, you know, still. There's enough room for love in the universe, right? So don't stop with the hate mail. Even Everyone has their own perspective. But you we all know I'm a butthead. Yeah, well, we do. Uh, and after that comment, I would like to welcome our guest, Ipimus Webb, to the show uh, after dismissing the hate mail. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I'm really glad you guys had me. Well, we are very happy to have you on. I, I, I can't really understate how important you are to the left-hand path in America, the, the philosophies of the left-hand path, and how important the Temple of Set is actually to uh, influencing the various philosophies of the left-hand path in, in this country and across the world. So it's a real honor for us to have you on the show. Oh, that's really nice. Thank you. Thank you. So we have to... We were kind of joking ahead of the show that the to actually write a commentary on the Book of the Law is uh, strictly forbidden. <laughs> oh, no, it actually says that, you know, he knew that writing such a commentary should be shunned as a center of pestilence. So, um, keeping that in mind, thank you guys for really, you know, having me here. Because uh, that also then obviously brings this damnation upon yourselves as well as me. Ooh. So within a night, we've earned damnation <laughs> for all three of us. All right. That's all right. I've already been called the evilest magician by the OTO in Detroit, so I'm okay. So, like, oh, nice. if, if our OTO buddies talk to us now, this means they should be kicked out, right? Kind anyway. of. Uh, <laughs> this probably means they should cleanse themselves afterwards. <laughs> And, and one of the interesting points that, and this is a, a very, very researched book. So everyone, you sh if you're interested in the book of the law and the left-hand path, you should get this book. But one of the interesting points that you make early on in the book is, you know, that it, it was almost as if Crawley was leading towards or looking for the left-hand path. He just couldn't get there because of his upbringing, because of all these other factors, and maybe you could talk about that for a minute. Well, this, this term left-hand path, which we get from Hinduism, from, you know, in, in Sanskrit, Valamarg, uh, in English at the time Crowley was coming to, you know, adulthood, didn't really mean that much. It had shown up in a novel by Bolwer Lytton, and just kind of meant the bad guy. And Crowley, you know, would say of other people he didn't like at the time, they were left-hand path. For example, he said that of Austin Austin Spare. Ah, uh, he's a black brother. But, let's consider, we have an understanding now, the left-hand path is the path of non-union. In the right-hand path, you seek to become part of the universe. You find something higher, better, more permanent than yourself. It accepts you, you become one with it. The left-hand path is about your own immortality. Mm -hmm. And I think basically, you look at Crowley, you look at his law, and it's a left-hand path law. He's acting in response to Christ. You know, what does Christ tell us in the Lord's Prayer? That we want to do God's will. What does Crowley say? Oh, no, you must do your own will. Now, he spends his whole life in trying to reconcile that idea with the idea of the universe. So I don't think he could fully say he ever totally understood either path the way we understand it now but he sure. created a context for the, all of us now well and it's a context I don't think there's anyone who's interested in paganism or occultism who doesn't know who Aleister Crowley actually is they might know wrong things but they know about him and, and that context has really kind of shaped western occultism in a lot of ways well, he, he opened such a huge door, and it's a door that you know existed for a long time, because certainly in, in late antiquity, 
philosophers and magicians were not rivals. They were often the same person. Mm-hmm. Only because of the uh, long-term effects of Christianity, magic became separated from higher forms of thinking. And Crowley basically said, look, I'm putting this back together. I'm going to bring forth this idea. And so he took such lore as he could gather from the best scholarly sources he could get at the time. He took the scientific method, which is the best thing that came out of the Enlightenment, and he put it together with that simple notion of, ah, you want to become better. These are your tools. And if you look around in a cult bookstore, everything is based on this. Now, they might even repudiate Crowley, or they may not understand Crowley as the root, but this is an idea. It's a civilization-changing idea. Mm-hmm. To get into it, um, and we'll probably, we'll definitely talk about this more, but that is almost by nature the aeonic word of philemma, of that idea that you just expressed, of, well, I might be wrong there, because it's more complicated than that, but... Well, you begin with, you know, will is where you have to start. Because it's, it's one thing to realize that you want something. Making that desire into something that's going to change the way you act, the way you think, the way you perceive, even what you're receptive to in the universe, all of that is with will. And the word thelema, I mean, it's not even the word... <clears throat> if you went and spoke, say, like to Homer or to Plato... And, they wouldn't have used that word for will. They would have said bold. Thelema, which is sort of a New Testament word, originally means wish. It means desire. And this is what Crowley was drawn to. Of course, obviously, since Jesus is using the word thelema, Crowley will use the word thelema. Ah. And that comes back to his particularly harsh Protestant, probably, upbringing. Well, I mean, his, it all it all begins with his mom. His mom, you know, looks at this little kid who is obviously willful and naughty, at least by the standards of this household, and says, you are the beast of Revelation. You are 666. Now, that's planting a very important seed. That's not a seed in the sense of literal prophecy. I don't think that John of Patmos was sitting there writing his book and saying, huh, I'm writing this about some English occultist. I don't know what England is, or exactly what an occultist is, but that's what I'm writing. But putting that soul name on someone, the name your mama gives you, that's a very important doorway, because you'll get information through that for your whole life. And you know, where else could he go? And yet, he totally admired his father. He admired his father's devotion. He took what I think are some of the best elements of the Plymouth Brotherhood, such as the love feast, and made that central, you know, it's absolutely the central ritual in all the things he put out, which is the Gnostic Mass. It's all about the love feast, about the agape. Now, when you were writing, uh, now there's two commentaries actually in the book. One is by Michael Aquino, which we don't have him on the show, so we'll just focus on your commentary <laughs> um, and how it actually interacts with the Temple of Sets philosophies. Now, I mean, part of this has to do with the idea of aeonic words, and oftentimes in the book we, we have to almost talk about the, the different words, like Thelema and the Aeon and the worldview that goes along with it, and then looking at Thelema and the Book of the Law through Kefir and how how that interpretation is possibly different than the interpretation that perhaps many OTO or Thamelites or or people who are not quite looking at it from the same vantage point of the temple set might have. So maybe you can illuminate that a, a little bit as we start going deeper into this. Well, first I'll talk a little bit about that whole notion of words. We can look at any great thinker, 
and we can see there's a word that sums up everything about what they were trying to do. Like if we look at Thomas Jefferson, clearly the word is democracy. And this is a word that shines through in all of his writings. It's the word he struggled with. He didn't always do the things he should do. For example, he didn't free his slaves. But the word became central. With the word thelema, the word of will, you look at Crowley's life, it is an instant testimony to the notion of will. Uh, both his successes and, more importantly, his struggles show someone who's totally dedicated. Now, the word kefir, which is an Egyptian verb, meaning I have come into being, is about self-creation. Uh, Sedian sees self-creation as the very the first thing you're going to have to do. We have a facility in ourselves for creating all kinds of things. As magicians, we create things all the time. As humans, we create our gods, we create our art, we create our religions. But do we ever take this most interesting aspect of ourselves and say, ah, what I really want to create is myself? Will becomes the fuel. Will is the, the most important tool in self-creation. Now, I'm going to take and completely study an idea, and I'm looking back at its roots. I look back at how, in some ways, this idea has evolved for millennia. I'm going to look back in Egypt, where the word kefir existed. I'm going to look at what Crowley did and say, ah, I see tendencies toward where I am. Of course, some future person will be doing the same thing with my writing. Because this mm -hmm. is the human method. You look back and you look forward. People are trees. You know, your roots are in the past and you can keep growing them just as those branches are in the future. So when you were going through the, uh, the aspects of the Book of the Law, you're looking at the Book of the Law as a method of how it it fuel, fuels into the word expert. So it's almost like how does this translate into that word because that word is one word that you yourself have uh, interfaced with closely. I guess that's the best way to put it. Mm -hmm. And so then you're looking back at the book of the law see how does the law of Thelema feed into uh, Kefir and how does that outlook changed your interpretations of the book of law so all of it comes down into well, how is Crowley becoming becoming literally how did Crowley become and how can we follow that in our own ways no absolutely no that, that's such a wonderful summary it is about Crowley's becoming and the, the most important moment in his life is the reception of this book Everything in his life led up to this, but he was also not expecting it. And this is that true moment of self-creation. In one hand, you can look it back and say, every step I've taken led to this place. But in another part of yourself to say, this is also totally mysterious to me, because since this is my moment of self-creation, I am looking on a world I've never looked on before. I'm suddenly awakening. And for him, this all happened you know, in Cairo uh, during the three days he received the book. And then the rest of his life, he's making sense of this moment of supreme meaning. And magicians seek things like this. We seek moments of illumination. We're different than mystics. We're not like, ah. Oh, Hopefully the gods will send me something. I'm so patient. The magician goes and says, no, wait a minute. I'm knocking on the door now. And if it's not this door, I will find the door, and I will find the knock, and I will keep doing it till I get an answer. And I'll knock louder until something answers. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, will knock, I will knock loud, and that will look very strange to my friends, because a lot of the things you do in these sort of liminal states look very weird to your host culture. Now, it's very interesting 
that take on it because originally uh, Crowley actually went to Cairo. He was doing a ritual to try to basically show off, you know, and he even accidentally picked the perfect room in the pyramids to do it uh, to kind of put all those pieces together, not knowing that he was self-creating what would be his life purpose at that moment. But he put all these pieces together completely accidentally to try to impress his new wife. Now, yeah, the, the whole moment with Rose is really wonderful because when he decided, he says to his wife, you know, are you interested in this whole magic thing? You know, I've done this golden dawn for a while and ah, it was kind of boring. They've got politics, but I can show you something. Now imagine, as a magician, just think about that. Do you have such faith in your magic, you're going to take a non-magician into a room and do a ritual and know there'll be visible results? A lot of us don't work at that level, or at least not all the time, but he knew this was going to happen, and yet what happened was utterly mysterious. He goes in, he invokes the powers of air there in the king's uh, chamber in the Great Pyramid, which has all kinds of interesting uh, historical and geometrical properties. The room lights up enough so he can read the ritual. And totally unexpected thing happens. The woman that he says he's pledging his life for goes into a trance and says, they're waiting for you. Now, most people would at that moment and you know this in the magical society, that would be the end of it. Then they would brag about that to all their friends. They would be down at the occult bookstore the next day, or these days they would be online. Oh, I did this ritual, my wife went into a trance, that was it. He realized that that's the opening of the door. Yep. Most people just get to that point, and the moment something happens, they're like, oh, that was it, look at me, look how powerful I am. He was able, even with his huge ego, to humble himself, to become receptive, to actually go out and say, who's sending me a message? What's the message? Now this is a rare thing, because you look at Crowley and you see this man of tremendous ego. Now he's a mountaineer, he's great at chess, he's a tremendous lover, some facility with language, uh, not as good a poet as he thinks he is, but a poet. Oh, snap. Uh, But at that very moment, he's able to say, it is more important that I humble myself. I find out this divine thing. And he doesn't even sure. He doesn't know, is this this from within me? Is this from the outside? I'm not sure. But I know the door is open and I had better go through. And he spends... That's where you get the, the, you know, the book of the law. He spends the next three days putting this together, this book of the law, which uh, is pretty much the seminal text of probably modern occultism, at least, at least for the OTO and probably for chaos magic and and the temple of set as well. Well, and if I'm remembering my Crowley history correctly, did not Rose dictate the Book of the Law as he wrote it down? Yeah. Well, Rose Rose helped, and it's unclear to what extent this is her voice, or this is the voice of Awise he is hearing, or this is his own voice. Because he, he knew what he was aiming for, in a sense, because he already uh, had looked at the stele of Anket and Kansu, because uh, Rose had pointed out this item in the French Museum saying, ah, that's Stella, that's yours. And he did the right thing. He hired the best scholar he could at the time to translate the Stella for him. Mm-hmm. Now, there were some translation errors. Uh, for example, the name Behute was translated Hadith. There is no God actually called Hadith. Okay. That was just a French um, <coughs> translation problem of the time. But he chose the best scholarship he could. He used the hard facts he had available. Again, something most occultists don't do. You know, the typical occult neck is like, wow, anything that's getting me excited is good enough, man. 
Instead, he's like, okay, if it's this Stella, I have to look. He used a ritual that he saw as one that would bring him uh, true inspiration. So he got the best tools he can, he got the best place he could, and then he was totally open to what happened. Mm-hmm. Now, after, after he writes this down, to put this in context a little bit, uh, he doesn't call himself, and this is kind of like a, a, a difference, and he doesn't call himself an infamous until much later in the process, even though he, uh, from the setting perspective, would have brought this into being, this new word and this new aeon, it's uh, in the book. It's kind of like he waits many years before he actually acknowledges that he brought this into being and what it could mean. Well, yeah, the the whole point of Thelema, Thelema is not a word of the sudden school. You don't just walk up to someone in the street and say, "Hey, Thelema," and they get it. You know, this isn't a Zen moment. Right. Will must be forged. It was 15 years from the reception of the book to claiming the grade of Magus, uh, which he did just for historical fun. In the city of San Francisco, at a pub on California Street called the Rose and Thistle, which if you go nice. to California Street now, uh, I believe that's a gardening store. But um, last time I was there, they at least knew about the pub. And it's a pub has great history in terms of San Francisco's avant-garde movements. Lots of poets were there. So it's a really kind of auspicious place. But it's an amazing thing to say, ah, I have an idea, but it's taken me 15 years to be the incarnation of that idea. Again, since we live in a society now that demands instant gratification, most people would just go on Stuck it up on the Facebook page, status. Received a word, and I make it. Done. You have to admire 15 years of struggle. And, and this, the, the, that struggle is very much what later, later parts are, of the uh, book is talking about in the process that you yourself, Mike, uh, you know, Iphimus Aquino and many other magists of the Temple of Set actually went through yourselves where you were struggling with different words and using the Book of the Law as a example of, of that struggle and how long it could take. Oh, no, you could look at, you know, my, my, my teacher, the person who um, is closest to me, uh, Dr. Stephen Edward Flowers, he received a word, and from the time of his reception of the word Runa until he was claimed the word, claimed the title of Magus, and was recognized with this title, was 15 years. And he had to go off and get a doctorate and found a huge group like the Rune Guild and, I don't know, learn 16 Germanic languages and a few other odds and ends on the way. Uh, this is very much not what we may expect of the path of magic because we see the path of magic through popular media. Right? I mean, man, if you're looking at Charmed, it doesn't take very much to get magic going on a high level. Without the book, mix some stuff in a little, you know, crystal, throw it at a demon, bang, you're done. That a magician requires struggle is how the church for years was able to get rid of magic. Because if you give not only a penalty for its practice, but you end the schools, no one's going to do this for 15 years. Yeah, ain't that the truth? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that path of adversity, though, that's, that's one that actually it brings up a point that we, you actually mentioned in the book, is that, you know, there's other words that even relate to how much adversity you've overcome um, as... Not necessarily a good example. It's not necessarily the charms, poof, what do you need? It's how much perfection have you self-obtained versus 
even the amount of obstacles you, you started from. Well, you know, the saving grace for Crowley is the fact that, you know, Frederick Nietzsche was already figuring out these ideas. Um, you know, and Crowley was able to, you know, you could, you could also say of Nietzsche in many ways, because he was a magus of the word will as well. Uh, Nietzsche, who pointed out that the struggle is what makes the self. And what Nietzsche did not have access to was, and some of the parts of the struggle are magical, parts of the struggle are mystical, uh, parts of the struggle are physical. You know, I don't think Crowley would have achieved what he achieved at all if he hadn't been a mountaineer. Because that's that's such a struggling pastime where you're fighting all elements of fatigue, you know, air, everything to have the fortitude to make it. And then what you get for making it is viewpoint. Mm-hmm. You know, what you get, you get the top of the mountain and then you can see this is, you know, such a, a metaphor for his life. But if you look at anyone who's truly an initiate, their life in many ways is very holistic. You see the same pattern repeating again and again, whether it's physically, emotionally, mentally, or daimonically. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's also how you can spot these people who are not truly initiates, you know, who you'll see with their books or their web presence or whatever, and you're like, wow, one part of their life seems to flow in a certain way, but all the other parts don't fit together. Right, we're, we're really seeing this picture of perseverance and self-reflection and hard work. Yeah, that's why, you know, that that's actually makes it, um, in many ways, not popular. However, of course, there's the other side. There's the side of desire. I want things. And to be a magician, you have to want that more than anything else. Mm-hmm. You know, that has to be something that, you know, that you wake up in the morning and like, man, this is something that is just as important to me as paying my power bill or going down to the gym or anything I have to do. You know, the dark side, that side of want, that side of desire, if you integrate it with the light side, the side of, I will persevere, then you have something. You know, and this, of course, very much in the temple's point of view, you know, we see Set as the prince of darkness. Not in the sense of, it's Satan there and just keep tempting us, but that he is absolutely the god of desire and imagination. And if you have desire and imagination and hard work, you will create yourself. Think how much imagination it must have been for Crowley to be sitting in that hotel room in Cairo, writing down a book from a disembodied voice that's revealing to him the secrets of the universe, and yet not then go out and be completely crazy. Well, I'll, I'll point out something funny here. Now, a, a very strong imagination and a s- strong desires within oneself could also be one's great stumbling block. Of course, because you have to have, you know, there has to be this balance. You know, the balance has to also uh, do things such as, am I proceeding in a logical fashion? Uh, Crowley's, you know, one of his saving graces was, I'm going to have the scientific method. And, you know, you and I have spoke before this, the radio show, we've talked about this, that idea that you have to keep notes, you have to be laborious, you have to mm-hmm. try things out. Absolutely. Uh, I think we've only mentioned that a hundred times on our show to, to do those. I, I, I think things. you've only mentioned that in 112 episodes before this one. Yes, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not quite using how, but I think that's about right. That's off the top of my head. That's probably pretty close. There might have been one or two that we missed mentioning that. And so. The other thing is to, to go back to the concept of words you know, and to put this into a little bit of historical perspective. So, as many people know, the Temple of Satan was birthed out of the Church of Satan, and the word, or the word that embodies LeVay and the Church of Satan was indulgence, is, is what you mentioned, and that's a, actually a great word for the Church of Satan. 
to give it into a perspective of what it means to embody a word fully. Well, you know, the Church of Satan is so much, you know, was was a seminal, seminal, very important group in the 60s. Now, the Church is still important. I still, you know, and I, ha- I have friends, and I even uh, have friendship with Peter Gilmore, who's the, the, the head of the COS, um, although they're about something very different than us. Indulgence is such an important word. It's the word of temporary union. I want something so much. I can lose myself in it for a moment and then come back to myself and I want some more. Now, you can see the same thing going on in the hippie movement, whom you know Anton LaVey would have hated, as going on with him, that whole, if it feels good, do it. Uh, but indulgence is frank. Indulgence will uh, cut through the bullshit. A lot of nice things about it as a word. And indulgence leads to self-creation, because it's that moment of, hey, I love chocolate, or I love sex, or I love fine literature, but what is the I that is doing the loving? Ooh. All right, it's putting into perspective where we go from the will and the sides of desire of the will to moving towards indulgence which is expressing the will and desire and then to kefir which is the creation of self yeah and if you think about this in terms of of an almost sexual metaphor um kefir could be seen as a product of self-love of self-lust even however one must always if one is expressing love this way not lose yourself in the self-love. Um, egotism is good until something better comes along, but if nothing better ever comes along, egotism is very, very self-destructive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to, I mean, to kind of go back uh, a couple books from uh, Overthrowing the Old Gods, that's something that you very much talk talk about in Uncle Satnet's Guide to the Left-Hand Path, that so egotism is the end of learning, in a way. It's not, it's really a sin of the left-hand path. It's, it, even though it's the th- single thing associated with the left-hand path the most. Well, one thing that a lot of people are confused about, the left-hand path is not egocentric, it's psyche-centric. Egocentrism is a, a start. Because at the start, you're going to say to yourself, hey, I'm worth it. I'm going to do these things. But, is there a much more interesting moment, this moment of mystery, when you become aware of these parts of yourself not directly accessible to your daytime consciousness and say, ah, I want to experience all of me. And that means some parts of me I need to turn down a little bit. And it means I have to be receptive to a lot of things. Again, with Crowley, if he had not been receptive to the Book of the Law, he could not have achieved what he achieved. He had to have that moment of turning off his own ego, but he also then later had to have the moment of turning the ego back on as a tool in the service of his psyche. Mm -hmm. So you must love the ego, you must let the ego go for a while, then you bring it back as your best tool. Everyone says in the occult world these days, and he will tell you the body is your best magical tool. That's true. Absolutely. The body will teach you almost everything you need to know. But the ego will teach you more if you look at it with a certain degree of remove. Why am I always fascinated by these books? Why does this mystery appeal to me? These are the clues you need. That's not necessarily as easy as it sounded to actually <laughs> figure wow. out that, that observer, figuring out that you have to have this observer self that, like, and looking at your own patterns is way more difficult than that sentence indicated. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, that, that, that's where you, you know, that's where language also kind of begins to have that breakdown because language comes from the world of three dimensions and five senses. And the magician, uh, he or she, must go beyond the world of three dimensions and five senses. 
but not lose good rational grounding in that world. Well, yeah, I mean, there's two different problems. I mean, if they lose, you lose your grounding in the world, you, well, we've all heard and seen horror stories where people then become, well, literally crazy. Um, and they're not making any progress in the world, they just kind of tend their own mental gardens and that's about it. I mean, there can be, you know, amazing things can happen. You could look at the uh, historical figure, the guy that called himself the Emperor Norton in San Francisco, who mm. thoroughly believed he was the Emperor of the United States. However, he held this belief so strongly, people accepted his currency. Once, when there was a race riot going on, this man walked in the middle of the street and started praying, and everyone stopped in honor of his own fantasy. So that kind of power, that sort of magic, is extremely powerful. And yet, if you look at it, say, in the hands of, a, I don't know, Charles Manson, maybe you don't want that kind of reality warping going on. Right. Yeah, because... When the megalomania takes over, God knows what could happen. Well, you know, there is that moment, and this is why, of course, we're a path of darkness in the Temple of Set. We realize that in one sense, we are making monsters. We're trying to be really, really good monsters, but we also realize the problem of life. And as you strengthen yourself, as I increase my will, all the things about me that aren't so good get increased too. Now, you see in the right-hand path, people that do undergo a lot of development, but never worry about, hey, that means my dark side is developed. And that's why we always see these like horrible scandals among evangelists. How can they be that way? Well, because they became a super being, but it never occurred to them, that also made them a super sinner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because they never acknowledged that fact of themselves to accept it, control it, and integrate it. So, when the moment struck, a moment of weakness, usually alcohol or something like that, it pops out. <laughs> and it pops out strongly because you've made it strong, just like you've made the rest of yourself strong. You know, I mean, it took a lot of power to, like, build up your huge ministry. And then if you're using that to, I don't know, pick up underage people, you have a lot of power at your disposal. It's a very sad moment as a human being. So, so, so your, your argument would be that the self-aware person would recognize these issues and trim them. Oh, absolutely. In fact, the self-aware person, you know, the left-hand path initiate, looks upon desire as a doorway for him or her. I'm going to develop things through my desire. Now, in this, we are most like our Eastern brothers, the Tantrics. Tantra is about desire just in the same way the rest of Hinduism is about getting away from desire. You know, the Buddha says desire is bad. Well, he's correct. For the right-hand path, it is bad. We say desire is good because it's what builds the bridges. I mean, the word tantra itself means to weave. Similar to, I don't know, words in English like weird. Just technically more German. Well, weird is actually an, an English word that the German would be there to, but yeah, it comes with this good Germanic word. In fact, there's a lovely study of uh, German time, time concepts that deals with weird called the well and the tree that I highly recommend to people. Hmm. Isn't that, uh, wait, is this a, I don't know if that is a Dave Lee book or not. Uh, it's uh, Paul Bauschatz was the guy okay. that wrote it. Yeah. So, did you find that working through and working through the commentary and the book of the law changed you at all? Did it? Oh, what? Uh, did it change your perspective on both Crowley, the world, all of the above? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, the, the the very seed of this book. Uh, goes back to the year 2005, and actually was began um, with just some things being discussed on 
the Temple of Set electronic list, on our little mailing list, we were talking about the Crowley Centennial. And various people put forth some ideas. And I would look at some of these and I thought, you know, I don't think that's correct. I don't think that's what was meant. But rather than just saying, hey, um, I'm, you know, I'm your former high priest. I know exactly what you guys should know. This was my time to go and study and find out what's the context of this. Now, here's what Crowley did. Here's why it took 15 years. We live in a world without context. Now, for our ancestors' ancestors, there was a lot of context. You know, if you went to Egypt during the time of the pyramids, everybody knew the gods. Everybody understood the way the gods showed forth. Or likewise, if you were living during the Viking era, you knew those younger, you know, the younger runes. You knew the, the Futhark. You knew what the gods looked like. We live in the postmodern age where there's five million signals coming our way. We don't have context. Crowley said, right. I am going to give you context. I have to create a world so I can be the self in that world. And of course, when he did this, he did borrow a word from, uh, from Nietzsche, because Nietzsche talks about becoming your very own self, Ipsissimus in a world that reflects you in the ipsissimum. Right, instead of being the, the reflection of the world, the world begins to reflect you. Yeah, uh, Michael Aquino said really well many years ago, he says, you become more and more the constant and the world becomes more and more the variable. Well, and these are not easy concepts that we're talking about, guys, because... It is, especially in American culture, in this modern era, how easy is it for people to be shaped by their environment and by the media? Oh, and it's true, because we live, in, we live in a time that we have spent so much money uh, to discover how to manipulate people. Mm-hmm. You know, and we have these like completely artificial environments like shopping malls that are motivating us in all kinds of weird ways. Uh, and they're fun. You know, I'm, I, heavens, I love to go to Disneyland or, or to Vegas, which, of course, is also Disneyland, but with tits. And uh, <laughs> it's all good manipulation. But the level of manipulation is so deep. Like you're in a casino in Vegas, you're like, hey, I wonder what time it is. And you realize... There's not a single clock I can see. Right. There's mm -hmm. not a window I can look out of. I don't know how long I've just stood here mindlessly feeding quarters to this machine. That, that level of manipulation probably doesn't end in Las Vegas. I mean, you, you could make that argument about almost all of consumers' culture right now. It's very similar to that metaphor. Well, you know, we, we actually have a, um, you know, a system of meaning that's connected with capitalism, and, and by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm very firmly a capitalist, I'm, this is not an anti-capitalist statement, but we have sure. a system of culture connected with capitalism that's colonized so much of our brains. You know, for example, during the weekend, I woke up once at 5.45, which is the time I have to get up normally to go to the day job, and I thought, wow, I am so well trained. And that's kind of sad, isn't it? I mean, to think that even things like time and space, I am trained by my environment. Now, the left-hand path begins with the idea, hey, at least become aware of this stuff. If not, if you can, reject it. Mm -hmm. Make your own choices. But these are hard choices to make because we live in an era where there's so much, so many, many things controlling us and usually not controlling us for a reason. Unlike people that become interested in conspiracy theories, we think, ah, there's this group and they're controlling us for a reason. The sad and much scarier truth is, there's a lot of groups and they're controlling us and they don't have a clue as to why. Yeah, yeah, it's like a headless beast. It, absolutely, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, Lovecraft, you know, would have looked at it and immediately identified it as Azatoth, you know, the, the mindless god at the center. Well, just so many things we take for granted. You have that craving for a cheeseburger. Do you really crave that cheeseburger? Or is the clown emblazoned your brain since you were five? 
Oh yeah, because there's so you know there's all the, these these learned responses, uh, and learning to to become aware of that. Uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, and we had we had these certain different thinkers, you know, Gurdjieff, who became so aware of how much people are asleep, um, and Crowley, who becomes aware of the will. You know, I mean, I like to think kind of the big synthesis of those two ideas exists in the Temple of Seth. But both of these people are looking at the nightmare of history that's unfolding. I mean, think how terrible it is that huge things like world wars could come into being, and everyone, no one just pause at a moment and say, hey, well, why are we doing this? What are we thinking here? And the sad thing is, no one does. Well, some people do, but not enough. Well, what you have is a, a very small minority controlling the majority and directing the flow, right? And no one stops and questions. Well, the sad thing is, is that even people that are making that control don't stop and question a lot of what they're doing. You know, they may be getting more, uh, more coins falling out of the world machine that they're running, but they don't really think, hey, what does a world machine make? I mean, you know, right now, We've done this beautiful thing on the Earth where we've, take, we've made a garbage island in the Pacific that's twice as big as the state of Texas. Mm. Well, no consciousness went into that. There's no Mr. Burns somewhere going, excellent, because they were totally unconscious. And yet, this unconsciousness is mankind's biggest threat. More than anything else, the fact that mankind can be asleep on a corporate level, on a mass level, is our biggest threat. That's probably true, and probably one of the hardest for us to get get past. Well, it's hard to get past because we don't realize that consciousness does not remain. Because we all have these moments where things are clear to us. Uh, and, and, this is not, and this isn't new for us. I mean, heck, Plato was aware of this, you know, 2,600 years ago. We have moments of clarity, but those moments of clarity fade. Mm-hmm. And Gurdjieff's hope was, well, just learn to be clear all the time. Yeah, not so much. Good try. Um, but you need to have access to that as often as you can. And this is, you know, this is the big struggle for initiates. Occultism does not make you more alert. Occultism does not make you more awake. If you use some of its tools, you can move yourself there as part of rational life development. But occultism by itself can just lead to, say, a more exotic form of sleep. Mm-hmm. Sure. Very, very true. So it's uh, we've got about seven minutes plus the ending show. Do you have any upcoming events, or you know, plug some of your other books too? Because uh, you have several books, and some of which are very hard to find, actually. Uh, well, the, the good news is my uh, my Runa Raven books are coming in to print again next year. Uh, I'm not right now at liberty to say the company, but those things are coming back into being. Because I know some people are buying copies of those things for like 150 bucks. Uh, Man, so if I'd known that was the, the case, the, I would have saved some. The mysteries of the temple, of the, <laughs> the mysteries of the temple of Set. When I looked at the price on eBay, was five hundred yesterday. Um, wow, even I don't think I'm that smart. Now the uh, <laughs> the book that I have, of course, overthrowing the old gods, makes a great Yule gift. Uh, but the book that I am coming out next year, uh, Hippocampus Press is bringing out a thirty-year retrospective of my Lovecraftian fiction. Um, under the title Through Dark Angles and I, I'm really looking forward to that uh, I am mainly of course mainly I'm not an occult writer I mean that's a, that's a small part you know, mainly um, I'm a science fiction and horror writer yeah, uh, yeah exactly yeah you know the, the occultism is one of those things that's uh, an interest because it was always a passion but my artistry uh lies in what's called somewhat unfortunate in America experimental writing as well as you know my sci-fi my horror writing and some mystery novels out from uh, St. Martin's now those are interestingly enough easy and cheap to buy <laughs> on the internet I think they go for about four bucks 
four bucks. Get so, get some of the science fiction. And actually, you know, I, I would imagine that a lot of your, even though primarily you write science fiction and fiction, I would imagine that a lot of the philosophies slip into the fiction. Well, not 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 in an, in an intentional way. I've never because I, I you know I tried doing that some, and you do that some, and man, the fiction is really really bad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> an honest no, no, man. There we go. Well, I mean, you look at look at like you know Crowley's Tales of Simon S. Man, those are they're just not fun to read. Um, but if you transform yourself, then of course everything about you is transformed in some way. I mean, I can look at the number of you know, musicians in the temple, you know, and they're not necessarily writing musical pieces calling, you know, called Dark Knight of Set or something. They're writing, you know, pieces that have names that don't necessarily attract notice. But when I hear them, you know, I can feel the little hairs on the back of my neck rise up because they have been changed. They have found the holy fire within themselves. That's probably the greatest gift uh, you could develop, actually, to then change yourself and then have it influence your art, which then influences other people, even if it's not directly stated. Well, and, and this, is, this has been, of course, the mainspring of alternate Western cultism for, for hundreds of years. I mean, you could look at the Golden Dawn. You know, here you have Yeats goes out and wins a Nobel Prize in literature. You've got Algernon Blackwood. You've got Arthur Macon. You know, these are people that made major changes in the literature of the fantastic, major changes in modern poetry. But people don't realize this is a byproduct and a very good byproduct of occultism. Mm -hmm. There's a cosmic ecology in a traditional society, guys like you and me would be shamans. You know, we, you know, the tribe would put up with us because we acted crazy sometimes, but we produced certain benefits. In our world, largely, magicians become game designers, writers, musicians, filmmakers. But even things like teachers and social workers and what comes from their heart does pour out and change things. I actually think, you know, just as an aside, studying business, that a lot of businessmen are magicians. Well, of course, money is a magical system anyway. Yeah, but uh, just just the whole process of bringing an idea into manifestation mm -hmm. and the way you go about it, it's all the... I've seen it before. It's just, I've seen it with occult language attached to it. No, it's the same thing. You make a change. You're, first off, you know, magic is a process of making a change in your subjective universe that then manifests in the objective universe. Mm -hmm. you, know, you, you come up with whatever you want. You make a business plan. You do certain arcane things like take out loans or have an IPO that has their own lore about them. And the thing becomes manifest. Uh, you know, the book I'm reading right now that I'm having the most fun with is the history of the Whammo Corporation. I mean, those guys are magicians. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Usually they are. That's that's the funny thing of how how much our world rests upon the processes of, of actual magical development. So we only have about a minute left. How can uh, people contact you, Ipimus Webb? Uh, well, the the easiest way you can write my publisher, you can write Inner Traditions. Um, which is probably the, the, the easiest way to find me. Uh, you know, I hang out in various places like Facebook. I'm not hard to track down, but I'm also not particularly public right now. In the next few months, I'm going to create a new public face uh, for contacts about magical de dealings, just because I've noticed this book is getting a lot of um, notice, which is kind of cool. Even though we're supposed to be shunned and we're damned. There you go. Well, I mean, no, that, that, that helps, right? Because there there's go. always the rule of the forbidden. You know, if you come out and say, I'm doing a forbidden thing, people will pay attention to you. This is an old, old magical trick. Heck, this was probably an old trick in Plato's time. Indeed. So it is 9 o'clock, 
I'm going to have to take us on out. If you could stay on the line, uh, Ipimus Webb, uh, just okay. for a second. Absolutely.